Welcome to the Knock on Archery podcast, where we bring all archers and bow hunters together from all walks of life with the goal to educate, empower, and inspire you to be better both in the field and on the range. Hey everybody, welcome back to another Knock on podcast. This was actually a swap cast. This was a podcast that I had recorded for the Archery Country podcast in Minnesota. Wade actually came here with a mutual friend and we did a bow build, a setup. I talked him through a little bit of the historical reasons why I do things the way I do and gave him a little bit of I guess of an experience here himself. He's quite an archer, avid outdoorsman, and also one of the techs up at Archery Country in Minnesota. One of the things that we talked about was the importance of archery shops. And as we've started to get our feet under us here at Knock On, we've expanded and we're getting our products in some of these highly reputable shops like Archery Country. Uh, We've also got Archery Country in Texas, uh, the Bow Rack, uh, Badass Archery uh, out in Utah, just to name a few, Lancaster Archery. Uh, we are starting to work on that. If you're a dealer interested in that, uh, please email us at dealers at knockonarchery.com. But this was a, a fun podcast and I think an eye-opening experience for Wade to be able to come here and see the whole process go down and then be able to just have some time to talk with me one-on-one. So hopefully you enjoy it and thanks everybody for the support and listening in. Welcome back, everybody, to Archery Country Podcast. This is your host, Wade, as we are in a completely different studio than you ever heard us at. And uh, we're located down in Iowa, and we have probably one of the coolest guests, if not the coolest guest, we've ever had on our podcast. And I know that all of you already know, because on your iPhone or your display in your vehicle, you see exactly what this is labeled. We have the one, the only, from Knock on Archery, Mr. John Dudley, sitting next to me. Dude, where did that voice come from? I tell you, it's a character. <laughs> it is. It's a character. Where the heck have you been for the last several hours, bro? <laughs> Just learning and shooting my bow. and That's hilarious. And learning. That's but, hilarious. I was like, what in the world? This guy just came out. Checking to see if your headphones were broke. Yeah, I told you that's why I, I like not. this mic. It's it's all in the mic. Yeah, the, you're like in your element right now. Why are you shooting <laughs> archery, bro? You need to be a freaking well, radio I, I announcer. Did, I did this for so long, and then COVID hit. Then I got to stay home and take care of boys and that's awesome. do the whole deal. We're also down here with my good friend Andy Ehart, who is actually my connection with the mastermind himself. Uh, known Andy for a long, long time. He's also a good friend of yours. You guys do some work together. But the coolest thing about this podcast that I wanted to kind of get out of you is we've had an explosion with PSE. Boom. We've had an explosion with the Levitate last year and the Levitate this year. Also some other bows. Not literally. (laughs) Well, not literally. Not not literally. (laughs) No, uh, they've been going off the shelf at, at a high, high rate. And I know a lot of it has to do with you and social media. And we can talk a little bit about new ownership and everything. But what do you see, you know, you, there's so many podcasts, so I don't want to ever, like, a broken record, just have you repeat and repeat and repeat. But as far as your relationship with PSC and allowing you the ability to design, and I've learned so much in the last hour and a half when we were building Andy's bow here, just from you and things that you put into it, where do you see the future going? Uh, I don't know. I don't map out that far in advance, to be honest with you. I think... And truthfully, 
I didn't even really know that I wanted to go down the bow model road because to be honest with you, if I go back, um, if I go back to my first beginning to negotiation with, with PSE, um, and honestly that year, my contract, my contract publicly, like all the manufacturers knew that a long-term contract was coming due. And if I'm totally honest, um, I didn't want to be singular. I actually asked all the archery manufacturers if they would split my contract equally to where I could represent all companies for certain parts of, you know, like I wanted to be able to talk openly about Matthews. I want to be able to talk openly about uh, PSE and, uh, and Hoyt and ones that I'm familiar with. Mm-hmm. Um, but then PSE actually came forward and they're like, what do you think about having your own model? But we're literally going to be able to give you an engineer and what you visualize, we can bring to life for you. And, and it's not like, I never wanted my name on a bow if I didn't have part of it. I didn't like, for example, when I was at Hoyt on the target side, I had a lot more feedback into what was going on. Normally on the hunting side, the engineers there are really dialed. And truthfully, um, I mean, they're all dialed, but um, on the hunting side, I would normally get a model half a year or nine months ahead of time to literally be able to shoot it and build content with it. I wasn't, it wasn't very often that they said, Hey, here's, um, here's the carbon matrix. What do you think of it? You know, or what should we change? There was really never any of that. Um, so so I didn't really want to have a, a knock on bow that was just our logo put on a pre-existing model. Like I didn't want to be a knock on version of an RX seven. Right. Um, because I do design, you know, I do like R and D I didn't yeah. like, this is just my background, which a lot of people don't, you know, they don't really know. Um, they hear it. So I kind of thought that was a very cool idea because one of the things I was very, very passionate about was I really wanted to be able to bring forward a, a really good bow for a budget price, just because it coincides with our passion for free education. So I really wanted to bring out a model like that, but I also couldn't, so I couldn't come out of the gate with the embark, um, you know, because that the whole purpose of that was I wanted people to embark on an archery journey. Okay. Um, but I couldn't come out of the gate with here's Dudley's bow and it's a $700 bow. So, but I also couldn't come out with something that was, I had two passions. One was to, to come out with something that people could get into archery and have a really killer intermediate setup. The other passion I had was to make a bow where there was no like boundaries on price or material. Okay. So, but the problem was neither one of those would have been awesome to show up year one with because obviously there's like this shock in the industry of, you know, I left Hoyt. Mm -hmm. Um, And truthfully, I didn't want to leave Hoyt. You know, Hoyt had first, like Hoyt had all the time to, to do whatever, but 
And I knew, honestly, I told Hoyt flat out what was offered on the bow model side of things. And I knew it didn't fit, you know, it just doesn't fit their model. Mm-hmm. For PSE, it's perfect because their their ability to build custom equipment is like, I've had several friends that have worked with me at the other manufacturers I've worked for. And when they see PSE and their ability to make something happen, they're just like, oh, wow. Yeah, this is awesome. Because PSE can, it's kind of like my white bow everyone's freaking out about. Yeah. Like, you know. Which is right here. Yeah, that was something that, you know, they can, they can just do that stuff fast. There's just Mm -hmm. no way, you know, we couldn't, we couldn't make those adjustments at the other places because all those processes weren't internal. Oh, okay. Some processes are sourced out. And, and honestly, like, um, I know Matthews had got to the point where they were doing, you know, certain colorations inside and they're dipping, you know, started bringing an automated dipper. And then, then I know Hoyt did after that too, but, um, just some of that ability to customize or say, you know, Hey, let's try this riser with a half inch longer limb tomorrow. Like they can do it. You know, they can just, no shit. they can do whatever they want. Yeah. You know, PSE is is uh, is made internally and that's a full functioning like start to finish bow manufacturer so and that speaks it speaks hugely to consumers especially when you start branding it with three little letters yeah yeah you know. well the the problem with pse still still today is pse is the most undermarketed high-end bow that there is like you know we're getting better Mm-hmm. And, and honestly, the company as the whole company was structured and from a marketing point of view and where money goes and their pricing structure. And there was just never like the proper marketing department and marketing carved. It just, and the thing is like, if you look at Pete, Pete was a bow hunter that built bows to be better than what he had last year. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he was an engineer. Yep. He's not a marketing guy. Whereas Matt McPherson, marketing, yeah. like Matt is the master marketer, period. Mm-hmm. You know, out of anyone in the industry, Matt McPherson is going to outmarket you. Done. Right. Like, you know, when it comes to a long-term play with a product that can coincide with his marketing vision, mm-hmm. I mean, that's just like, it's going to happen. And, but, you know, you th- so you, you say that and the company, as, as things have changed a little bit, you have to be one of their main tools for that. I th- well, I, think I mean, I, what, what bow company wouldn't have that? I, yeah. I think I was a very important tool for PSE because I came to PSE after being trained by Matt McPherson for 10 years and mm-hmm. then being with Hoyt and that team for a little bit longer than that. Right. So, you know, you're talking two decades with you know matthews was one when i was there mm-hmm. we went to i went to hoyt and not because of me but hoyt right. slid into number one during that time too so i've been with two out of the three big players and been mm-hmm. number one at both yeah and and like and it you know an internal part of that you know to where i i'm not just a shooter you know quote unquote people see me as a shooter or a shooter contract you know i've always worked directly for one of the top one or two people of the company Mm -hmm. you know it's not like i've been down that chain i've actually always 
been up there. You know, when I was at Matthews, I dealt with Matt and Joel. Like mm-hmm. those were the only two people in front of any of us when you know when I started. There was twenty something of us there. Right. You know, at and then at Hoy, you know, I was directly with Mike Looper and Jeremy and Randy Walk. You know, time mm-hmm. with Randy was pretty limited because he was definitely more standoff mm-hmm. um, from an external point of view. But, you know, I, I've been part of some major marketing people, right. you know, big marketing people. And then obviously, you know, that's honestly, that's my, like, what I love to do is I love to, I love to tell the why. That's the mm-hmm. one thing that's different from me then I think some of the the other people I've mentioned is I document the why from start to finish. So to kind of go back when you were asking about the bows, I couldn't bring out a cheap model and I couldn't bring out the most expensive bow ever at my first year first out. First year, yeah. So just went with a very bulletproof um, aluminum bow that had some cool features to it, right? Some mm-hmm. Some cool little ideas to it um but it just shot stay i built it on the specs of like the most forgiving bows historically that i had ever shot i loved 34 yep. and i loved a seven inch brace um just based on the geometry of bows at that time um and the size of the cams that fit me now now the the shorter shorter bows the 32 or the 33 with these bigger EC2 cams, they actually fit me better than a 34 for myself when it comes to how I like string angle to fit my face. So the NTN was just a bulletproof aluminum bow that honestly fit in the price range between a Matthews and a Hoyt. Mm -hmm. Like strategically, that's just what it had to be because I knew most of the attention was going to be Dudley went to PSE and they've got then that's you know that's going to be the new bow but i kind of i felt like people would look at that first model the same as when they look at a model that another like tv celebrity has when they say well okay that's actually just a right this bow it just model x with yeah they put the, paint, they put a know. signature on there which more power to those people like i remember when michael waddell first had a bone collector bow like i remember going up to him at the at the um the outtech innovation show and i'm like dude you got your freaking name on a bow like i mean because i look back at when michael and i were like 20 years old and nick munt was you know bill jordan's cameraman it was like nick's first assignment (laughs) michael didn't have road trips yet like you know he had just become not been a camera guy and so we started at like that type of thing where we had these icons that were just on these platforms that were so far above us and then to all of a sudden go to the show and this guy knows has his name on a bow. I'm like, I can't believe it, dude. And then, and then cam did one, mm-hmm. you know, and, and honestly, when cam did one, a bunch of people reached out and they're like, you know, are you upset about it? And I think Vicky did one too. And I said, I've never asked mm-hmm. like good for those guys to right. like make that part of their deal. I just had never asked. But when PSC came forward and said that, I thought, dude imagine just if you want to do it you can do it if you don't want to do it you don't have to do it because they're still going to bring out their models too um which has been pretty nice you know there's been a few overlaps unfortunately um but you know i think the levitate just 
really the levitate is really what opened everyone's eyes but I was also, that your pinnacle like is that a, a, a bow yeah, that you've sure, been dude. working on for a long time well, or no, are I, you a guy that just you have an idea at 2 a.m and you go and write it down and work on it and then get with the engineers well what happened honestly what happened was pse had a great carbon bow yep. the mock was a great bow there was parts to it I didn't like. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't like a cable rod that moves in right. any shape or fashion. I don't like it. Mm-hmm. If I've ever had a failure on one, it's it's a bow that's had a dog leg or some type of non-solidified cable rod. So mm-hmm. that, like for me, that was out. I was actually there um, three years ago, and one of the engineers came out with with a mock, but it had the DFC carbon in it. And he said, shoot this and let me know what you think. And when I shot it, because the one thing my body does understand, and this is something that I definitely have to give Matt McPherson credit for, because Matt's a musician. Mm -hmm. So Matt understood frequencies. So when a lot of people say, some people pull a bow back and they go, oh, that aim's good, or that point's good, or whatever. Matt feels bows like a musician would feel an instrument and i'm okay. you know as i learned that i'm i'm like seeing that now because matt would talk about things in the frequencies that they're that they're and vibration essentially is a frequency it's different mm-hmm. it's different types of frequencies so when i first shot that dfc carbon i just said right away i want to i want a bow with this material and that's mm-hmm. and I just said, can I have this before you guys use it? And they're like, yeah, if you want to do a carbon bow this year, you do a carbon bow. So then immediately I went to what I wanted and I'm like, I want a wider cam. And they're like, well, we got the, you know, we got the Evolve cam. What's up? And I just yeah, said, that's not notorious for PSE. Yeah. And I said, dude. I want a wider cam. I said, I want less spacers. I want to like widen that stance out. And I said, I, I feel like that is going to help stabilize the, the limb lean. So, you know, we widen that platform out. And well, the other thing I said too, is I'm like, everything we put on this bow for accessories and everything that we take out of this bow compared to the mock, I said, I had already visualized my marketing campaign would be to have a levitate with a QAD rest on it, a spot hog sight, and I did have a, I had a 10-inch stabilizer on it with no end weights. And I'm like, if I can pull a box out that is literally built with a sight, a rest, and a stabilizer, and that thing comes out of the box at the same weight as the carbon <laughs> yeah in the matthews i'm like that's it and i said and i knew frequency wise it felt better than anything that was out there and and i also kind of told them the type of cam that i wanted to feel and and the cam the cam design also comes from based on the riser and the limb length what you have to do in order to get like the you know one of the big questions is well what do you want the maximum draw to be mm-hmm. so you know, and and sorry, 32-inch guys and 33-inch guys, because I definitely hear from you guys. But the thing is, if you look at what the model mix number is for numbers of bows sold in 32 or 33 inches versus the number of bows in 27s that you that you wouldn't hit if you, you know, if you went to yeah. that far end, then that means you have yeah. to go up on the low end. 
And so just from a sales point of view specifically, the model mix, there's way more 27s than there are 32s and 33s. So, you know, based on that, I'm like, I I think we need a 31 and a half. If there is a legit 32 out there, I think they can short cable it or long string it and put an extra little bit longer loop on there and they'll make it work. So the cam design came honestly because of the draw spec that we wanted and we were going to widen that stance out. Mm -hmm. And then once we did it, like um, Kevin was just like, dude, this thing is freaking insanely fast. Like Mm -hmm. we're having to check something. And so, and it is, you know, it's, it's a freaking crazy fast. In my opinion, you know, the levitate one bow of the year last year. Mm -hmm. It's only PSE that I know of to ever do it. Yep. And it's, it's a freaking beast, Mm -hmm. dude. I mean, it is, it is, it should, it should be bow of the year again. You know, mm-hmm. the, the Mach 34 is awesome, but I think the speed, the you know, the, I think the speed could tip the scale for, you know, right. based on the axle-axle right. length. If you ask someone, what do you want, axle-axle or the speed, right? you know, but they did bring out this, the easier cam for both models right now, which a yeah. lot of people prefer the easier pull with and take the speed sacrifice. So maybe they would have taken the, the longer, but um, that bow just literally had no frequency and everything was simplified like um you know i wanted to have a rear uh stabilizer mount option i personally don't like five sight holes i like two Mm -hmm. um you know i've never needed the other ones i think most sight companies have them but you know and that was kind of the things that pete Pete clung to that. Pete liked that cable rod that you mm-hmm. could, the dog leg, because yeah. he said, well, when dealers uh, get a bad tear, they just move the cable rod and get it yeah. and get back. And I'm just like, well. Set them up right. Yeah, well, in my opinion, you got to move the cams or, yeah. the, or unless the riser, you know, the riser design is critical. Like grip position is critical mm-hmm. um, for lefts and rights. And it, it changes and, and it doesn't take much, which you can see from shimming a cam, how minimal it is. So I always personally would have rather just broke the bow down, taken the one thin sl- spacer off the right, move it over yep. to the left. You right. know what I mean? Rather, yep. rather than do a dog leg um, that you end up having to put more pressure on to get it to work. You have to, honestly, you're putting more putting torque. More pressure, you're yeah. putting more torque into your system to literally create a false tune. So, you know, I just, the the cable rod we put on, you know, I told him, I'm, I said, I want a cable rod that when it mounts, it cannot move wraps around the riser and you know when they were talking about like even set screws to like i'm like dude jb weld that mofo in there like <laughs> i'm not, like i'm not kidding when i say i don't want it to move right um so yeah and and i think documenting that why behind all that stuff and showing the generations like i showed the generations of the ntn i showed the generations of the um of the embark and i think more importantly i shot the embark for a year right you know i could and honestly that when i was working on the embark um when i was working on the embark the unite was actually like i i I already had a unite i had a unite before the levitate okay um and what happened was the unite originally was supposed to 
have a universal attachment system for accessories and then and then Matthews came out with the integrate on mm-hmm. the back for the rest and then I was like crap you know right. because the name unite was about uniting the parts on mm-hmm. a one singular mounting system so I ended up holding on to the unite for 2 years and then and then when I went in and felt that carbon that one of the engineers had and when PSC's like yeah if you want to do a carbon this year it's all you so just do what you want and I'm like take off game freaking on yeah did you have to do anything limb wise did you have to did um limbs honestly I have to, whoever's doing limbs at PSC yeah. credit to you guys because um I understand limbs but mm-hmm. you know honestly I wouldn't even know uh what glass they're using i don't even know if they have two layers of glass in these man yeah i probably should know that but honestly all i told the main thing was once we have the riser nailed and then we need to figure out what draw length we needed to go to for the major for the length yeah then at that point i think it's like okay this is going to be the limb length which makes this brace height right and then this cam can go to this length you know so so when let's just touch on this just because i see it right on the riser and this is my levitate that i'm holding on to a dead frequency carbon you touched on a little bit and you said yeah Yeah. can i have this and run can you explain that without or can you what i can explain is um so the carbon process with pse is is really unique it's got a it's got a, a really a really unique core system i'm not totally sure how much i can say but it's got a really unique core system and then the carbon the carbon actually comes on like big sheets and it's and it's all laser cut out so there's lay you know and and then i don't know how many pieces it is but it's a ton it's like 70 pieces or something they're all stuck onto this the you know to literally a base material i can refer to it as that which Mm -hmm which is more or less um, the shape of that riser. And then they're, they're all stuck on there. And then it, it actually goes through a process to where it, it heats up to a point where the molecules of all the labor, la- layers of carbon, they actually fuse together from, from an expansion process. And it literally, like, imagine just taking layers of carbon that's mm-hmm. like you know uh, with like a yeah. sticky back and stacking <laughs> it all on it and having this thing that looks like a sandwich and being able to put enough pressure on that freaking thing to where you can't tell it was separate pieces of layers like it just it mm-hmm. creates one can one solid layer so there's multiple layers so one of the layers of that carbon for that bow was a slightly different material other than carbon so that in between those layers there's literally a barrier that has a material that kills vibration kills vibration yep so correct me if i'm wrong because we've shot aluminum bows ever since we were little mm-hmm. and then up I, had and a, I had a wood riser one my first one actually was it your first yeah like one of the, like those old brownings that had the super big wood handles but they had compound like they had glass limbs still have it i don't think i still well <laughs> honestly all my bows all of my first bows are in matt mcpherson's bow his bow museum 
Okay. Every every bow that I own because I couldn't afford a I couldn't afford the down payment for to buy my first home. Yeah. Um, I was like 20 years old or 21, and I think it was like 10% down. And he had asked me like. We were in his bow lab, and he said something about how things were going. And I said, really good. I'm trying to move out of my apartment so I'm not throwing, like, rent money right. away. And I said, you know, I'm trying to uh, to get, like, a home. And I told him I found, I found like, this starter home for, like, 48 grand or something. Mm-hmm. It, wa- it was. It was 48 grand. And with closing costs, my first house was 51 grand. And I needed 10% down. I needed 5,000 bucks. I didn't have it. So Matt said, well, what do you, do you have anything you want to sell? And I said, the only thing I have to my name is every bow I've ever owned. And so Matt said, bring them all in. And Matt bought every one of my bows up until my first, uh, up until my first Matthews, mm-hmm. my first, um, you know, whatever it was like, a, it was like a feather light or something. It was sweet. It was a signature actually. So the reason I was asking that, Okay, your wood bow is your first, but then aluminum, aluminum, aluminum forever, all through target world and even into your hunting aspect and now forever. Carbon, correct me if I'm wrong, is stronger when it's bonded than aluminum? Man, I mean, that's... It's kind of a loaded question. We've been told this, but I... Yeah, yeah, I mean, I've seen carbon stuff that's way harder than aluminum. I've certainly seen... So the reason I'm asking this is because when when you dive in for the the listeners out there, the boat the bow dudes and gals that go in a little bit further and they understand what riser flex is Mm -hmm. to me as a bow technician and getting into the carbon world and shooting carbon bows mixed with aluminum tuning issues sometimes are a lot easier. Does it have any correlation? Yeah, I think so. So with aluminum, um, you know, I, I actually, I always think back to the very first time I went to high country archery and I toured it. Um, I was like 18 years old. I went and toured high country, um, because I was a high country shooter for the first shop I worked at. Um, and I remember going and seeing all these risers. And at that time, the risers were all cut out of like, you know, they're cut out of like, kind of like a forge, I guess. So it would resemble, like, if you look down the back of your riser, just imagine that contour of your riser, of your cutout, your uh, sight cutout, and then your rest cutout, and then where it goes, your grip goes down. So it literally looked like that, but it was a four by eight sheet of it. So Mm -hmm. it was just like, and then what they do is, you know, every six inches they cut it, and then that piece becomes a riser that's then machined out. So they're, they're cutting all these you know, they're literally cutting like stamps out of yep. this sheet of plywood, right? You're like ripping two by fours <clears throat> out of a two out of a sheet of plywood wood. Mm-hmm. And I remember this thing, there was like they had three pallets stacked on top of each other and like <laughs> all the ones on the top were like pretty straight and the ones in like the middle were like kind of bowed and then like the ones at the bottom like the bottom risers were like bent to the ground between the pallets and i just i remember looking there and i'm like i don't want to be the guy that gets (laughs) those bows right there so you know with aluminum i think um there's definitely variations in um in kind of that material and i don't know how aluminum's once it's recycled, how it's processed, but I've certainly seen aluminum that have bur- like risers that have broke where it's clearly a hot and cold, you know, 
mm-hmm. joint of an aluminum when it's being reprocessed. So sometimes there's like hot and cold spots like that where, you know, aluminum can just shear and like pop um, and just virtually crack in half. The other thing is like, you know, probably how hot that thing gets. Like if someone's running one in a machine where maybe the, uh, you know, like the, the coolant and the, you know, the flush that's like flushing chips off of it. And it's also cooling that part. Like, let's say that that thing's not pointed in the right spot or, you know, maybe it's not, it doesn't have good flow Mm. or as bits start to wear in a CNC machine, you know, they start to, get a little bit of wobble in them and stuff. So there's, there's always tolerances and, you know, there's always tolerances and, and even, you know, I showed you, we don't have to say who it's with, but I mm-hmm. showed you like a, a rest that's out there. That's a very popular rest. Yeah. And I'm like, dude, have you ever noticed this? And you're <clears> like, <throat> no, mm-hmm. but with this look of like, and then you said, do you want to change it out? <laughs> <laughs> and I go, well, no, yeah. but, yeah. but I said, you know, so that's a, and you said, what would cause that? Well, that's a perfect example. It's an aluminum mm-hmm. rest. So, you know, you might find one that's tight as heck. And then all of a sudden you get Excellent. one where, yeah, where it's a little bit loose. Sometimes you see that with, um, with like limb pockets, you know, all of a sudden ones, you know, like your limb pocket to your limb seems like there's more space than others. That's, that is kind of the downside, you know, whereas, yeah. um, but carbon's not easy either. You know, it's not easy. But I do know one thing. Like, I'm not, I'm not worried about, um, I'm not worried about like riser flex on a carbon riser versus. You know, I've seen some people <clears throat> just bend risers like a taco yeah. shell. You know, and you've shot millions of bows i don't know if that's an astronomical number or not but that was you, pretty high if you, you said shot. arrows i might have been like <laughs> yeah, probably so the the cool thing that i experienced and i want listeners to know like john and myself we're we're not long-lasting friends we met each other today at mm-hmm. 10 o'clock and in the and you built andy's bow and we got a chance to see everything and the, the very cool thing and and again i'm not boasting my bubble or or pimping out anything like i know how to build a bow i work in a pro shop and yeah you work in a great shop we you know we go through things and it's not all about numbers it's about quality and getting it just in the hour 25 minutes the few things the one thing i respect about you and you do it on your youtube videos and you do it on your podcasts and and all of your you know your learning sessions is you explain like you said earlier the why Mm -hmm. this is why this works this way this is why this has a flaw, you know, and most of your, if not all of your equipment that you have part of, it's not you just sticking your name on it. It's you taking a product and saying, okay, I like A, B, and C, but I want D, E, and F included in that. If we can meld those together, then we got something. Yep. And that's why your systems work, you know. Granted, you're an ace when it comes to shooting and, and 120 yards is no problem, but there's there's a build behind that's helping you get there. Oh yeah, for sure. So last year's levitate, <clears throat> we've seen all the videos, we've seen all the kills. Everything's awesome. We could put a stick and a, and a piece of yarn in your hand and you'd be successful. But <laughs> last year's cam versus the EC2 cam. Yep. The need for that or why, where did that come from? Um, it's the hard thing about that question. And you could almost throw the S2 cam in there as well. Okay. Okay. 
all three of those cams will be the best cam someone's ever pulled or one to where uh, it feels a little bit aggressive or there'll be people that are like this freaking cam is awesome this thing i love the speed and this one pulls like a round wheel and i don't like it mm-hmm. i mean there's very different opinions so the um the ec2 cam i actually wanted i asked them to call it the easy cam because it's that would really describe it like mm-hmm. you wouldn't have to say well what's <clears throat> the difference between the easy cam i mean it's an easy cam however in saying that when you have a modular cam system there's always going to be one or possibly two draw lengths that work but they're not dialed okay because you're literally trying to like take this huge curve and make it feel good for everybody now back when matthews only sold cams in every draw length dude Matt would, I mean, I would build bows and bows and bows and bows a day just for cam, like cam mm-hmm. generations. Like yep. it would be nothing for him to do a hundred, a hundred different versions of a 27 inch because he wanted a perfectly flat knock travel at every draw length. And he wanted to try to get as much speed as he could out of every draw length. Well, from a dealer's point of view or a consumer who wants to be like, do I want a 27 and a half? Actually, I think I might try a 27 or, hey, I went to my first coach and he told me I need to change my draw length two inches. (laughs) Well, you got to buy an $80 cam. So so with the modular cams, you don't have that issue. But what you do have is you're going to have a draw length that doesn't feel as good as the other ones. Mm-hmm. And so for me on the EC2 cam, which is the new one, mm-hmm. the worst feeling slot of that entire cam from A to what G or something. Mm-hmm. Um well you can go all the way to L. Oh, that's the- right. Yeah, that one's <laughs> like the whole alphabet. Yes. The worst feeling one of all for me is the A slot, which is what I have to be in for my draw length. It's the max. Mm-hmm. What I don't like, I don't like short valleys, and I don't like when the poundage hits right at the very end. And when with that one, as you're totally maxing that out, that's what happens. You get it. You feel really smooth and almost too smooth until, like, you have to, like, get the seven pounds at the last inch or something, mm-hmm. um, which a lot of people like that. Like, Andrew, right mm-hmm. here, Andy's like... He's like, when he pulled it back, he's like, oh, that is so smooth. And I'm like, do you like how it feels like right at the end? He's like, what are you talking about? (laughs) But I also am very methodical when I draw. Yeah. So I'm like feeling all that. Like I never like to, um, I don't like to like bang into the stop. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I really try to like feel the poundage the whole way. And I'm really trying to really trying to feel my mind muscle connection Mm -hmm. as I'm doing that. Whereas if I feel like I would just grab a big old fistful of that sucker and like, like when I have to build that bow on the right up there, it's like 110 pounds. And yeah. So like that one, I don't pull back. (laughs) Like I do the (laughs) other ones like that one. I got to, you know, get a fistful of string and, right and and rip that sucker back so when i'm feeling every part of that cam cycle on most situations um i like 
when it's a little smoother back there. Right. So, and honestly, what was really interesting was when we did the EC2 cam, the one thing that just kept coming up with me and Kevin was that in the two longest slots, it actually felt so much better than um, anything that the last two slots on the old EC2 cams. Like it was just... They actually, the the end of that cam feels like the middle of the old cam. Right. So, like, he was like, dude, feel this. <clears throat> and and he was right. So, I actually shoot my Levitate at 31, even for hunting, where normally I would go to a 30 and a half when I hunt. Mm-hmm. But I just love that B position. It's, like, just and awesome. it, it's it's different for me. So all of us Botex, we're all different draw lengths at the shop, right? We go oh. from thirty and a half down to twenty eight. It's not which is the awesome best, for your customers. Is. That's great. When I when I put this levitate, I just set it to my draw length. It went a half inch longer than what I should record, but that's just what feels good. And I'm in slot C, mm-hmm. and it feels like butter. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. when I grab. You know, we, we tuned one on Monday, and we built it, and he was on letter J. So you're at a 30 and a half in that? Uh, 30? Oh, a, a, B, wait, C do, you have an, do you have an EC2? This is EC2, oh, 29 yeah. and a half or Yeah, 30? dude, right there, that thing feels better than any cam out there. And like, I would draw, I draw his bow back, and I'm like, okay... Did I do something wrong, you know? And then I grab mine. I'm like, okay, that's home. And yeah. then, unfortunately, but fortunately, I don't have to shoot the A and B. But uh, I understand what you're saying about that. And also the cool thing about PSE and, and the cams that you have is the 90, 85, 80% let off. Oh, yeah. They've it's got, the, like, they've got the best back end. I mean, they have a great, they have a great let off. And they have a, a really good feeling back wall. It, like I said, it's just, it's the most underrated high-end bow on the market. Like, mm-hmm. they really are. I mean, you know, I, I, they really are. Um, and you know and, the cool thing about the pro shop? All you have to do is let them shoot it. Uh, yeah. It's not, you know, it's not a big, huge sales push. It's not a jam it down your throat. Just here, shoot it. You know, there's been several bows through the years um, that that's been the case. Like when I was at Matthews, the MQ1 and then the switchback were two that just stand out in my mind of, you know, because I think the switchback year, we actually sent one bow to every dealer and we put on the, like, not for sale on the limbs. Mm-hmm. Because we're like, if someone can shoot this one time, it's just like, they're going to look around like, how slow is this thing? Mm-hmm. And then you're going to be like, no, that's three. That's shooting 300 feet a second. You know, back then it was like 305 right. or 310, you know. Yep. So um, that was one. Then the other one was the carbon matrix. You know, Hoyt. You know, here we are yep. de- a decade later, Hoyt comes in with the carbon matrix and people are like, what in the freak is that? And then you shot it and you're like, oh, damn. I actually bought a bow that said demo. Yeah. It had the white you lettering could, on the lens. <laughs> you could, you could buy them after 12 months. Yeah. That was actually the rule. Um, and then, and then for me, I think, you know, I, th- I think the levitate was like that too. Where, mm-hmm. we, you know, at one shot, it was just like, 
whoa, that's different. Yep. You know, and that when you have those types of years, it's pretty freaking awesome. You know, and that's a cool thing about shops. Like you were telling me um, at your guys' shop, um, was it Russ, did you say? Well, who was your who was your owner that pulls the bows apart? Sorry. Oh, Jake. Oh, Jake. Yeah, Jake. Um, so you were saying, you know, mm. when when new bows will come in, Jake will yep. get that bow, but he'll fully break it down, make yep. it into a skeleton, and then rebuild it so he kind of understands like what actually is different about it. Yep. Um, th- that's such a cool protocol to do because um, a lot like when you um when you came here and like i i grabbed um a knock on qad rest right Mm -hmm. and i and i just said do you know why our rests are different out of the package and you're like uh no why Mm -hmm. and i'm like okay our rests all have this shim block put on them and the launcher arms are all shifted to this screw setting and i said and then when you put it on the riser like this and we tightened it down dude it's like center shot and i said home and i said so if you were a shop owner Mm -hmm. and your employee had to unpackage every qad to then put a spacer in it and and then the longer screw remember the washer if you don't drop it (laughs) and then remove the smallest screws on the planet to hold the launcher arm on remove those shifted over and then as a protocol i'd always put purple loctite on those when i mm-hmm. put them back in so i mean there's like 10 minutes every rest that yeah. your technician is spending to just assemble it correctly out of the package to work on these new bows that have thicker risers mm-hmm. so like ours are all mandatorily assembled that way because i've already i want to take them out of my package like i did for andrews mm-hmm we really didn't even have to move it. I mean, mm-hmm. that was pretty that was pretty lucky. Yep. But yeah, I mean, we didn't even have to move it and it's like right on. And then, you know, it's just for me it's the details of before I ever worked at bow companies, I worked for an archery shop and then I owned my own shop. Really? Yeah. Well, I I literally opened my own shop when the guy that I worked for said, "If you're not going to charge people for your coaching, and their time here, if you're coaching them, then you need to go. He said, you should open your own. I told him, if I spend more time with them and make them better, mm-hmm. they will always come back. Yep. If they leave here and they're no good, they won't like it. They're not going to buy another one. Mm-hmm. And he just said, kid, that's a great idea. You should do that when you have your own store. He's like, maybe you should open one. And I just thought, hey, yeah. Uh-huh. We've got a we've got a freaking horse barn out there. I'll do it, and that's what I did. Started ten ring archery in mm-hmm. Helen Helenville, Wisconsin, and so when I was doing those jobs, I didn't like taking a freaking golden key TM hunter out of the package and have to like sit there and fight that crooked ass little launcher, you know, (laughs) trying to get it tight without it spinning out on you. Like I didn't want to do any of that. Right. Honestly, the best freaking thing about the whisker biscuit is because any person assembling a bow can have that thing going so much faster. And the bottom line is from the consumer's point of view, you don't want that guy spending 10 more minutes on your bow. You want 10 minutes of his time in the range showing you how to shoot. Mm-hmm. So, like, you know, that's why, like, hey, I'm for me, 
if I can have products for a shop like levitates, you're not having to shim that thing. Mm-hmm. Like you take a levitate, you take one of our rests out of the package and you take, you assemble the spot hog exactly how our directions are written. Like you're freaking shooting a dynamite setup. That's mm-hmm. freaking bulletproof. And y- you can do it damn fast, yep. set it up. And then you've got more time with that customer, you know, right. especially when they come in and they're like, oh, dude, I'm going on a hunt like Saturday with my buddies. Right. You know, I don't know. They told me I need a bow. What do I got to do? It's like, you don't want them having to assemble, like, yeah, take the rest apart, put a block in it, put it back together. So know. that, that kind of just steers us right down a simple path that I can ask a question because we are a pro shop interviewing you. We're having a podcast. Thank you, too. And thank that. you for the opportunity. How important is it? <clears throat> you know, there's pro shops spread all over the world, but in North America. How important is it, in your mind, telling consumers out there, because they have to go to a pro shop to get your, your, your bow or the levitate, and to get a pro shop where, one, they're friendly enough, knowledgeable enough, but yet have, you know, the inventory so that you can try different things you know like earlier i asked you this question off air just to kind of preload the question <clears throat> you said you know like pro shop is the lifeblood of what we do yeah that's i wouldn't be doing what i'm doing you said can i ask you uh, like a question about pro shops i'm like bro what are you talking about mm-hmm. they're the lifeblood of keeping this whole thing going you know listen my my dream would be that every town or within every 30 miles any human could find an archery shop and when they went in that shop that shop was like presentable to people that are non-hunters it was um had like dudes behind the counter that the the owner paid to listen to like all the good podcasts to like watch videos like mine and others and have those guys like totally in tune with what the heck's going on probably more so throughout the industry than even myself because i'm very like singular in the directions that i have to look a lot of times like i'll be at a shop and i'll be like oh dude that's freaking cool i didn't know they did that because i'm not seeing all these other companies all the time so if a person had that every 30 miles, I would love that. And mm-hmm. honestly, every shop that is out there, every one of you have the tools, all the tools that shops like yours, Archery mm-hmm. Country, I mean, you guys are Archery Country, Archery Country, Texas, mm-hmm. you know, they're a freaking great shop. They, they, they let every one of their employees listen to it. Like if knock on podcast comes out, mm-hmm. take time, go listen to it. I mean, new video comes out, watch it. Mm-hmm. Like every shop has the ability to like give their, their, honestly, their customers that privilege of like being up to date and, and just and stock product. I mean, mm-hmm. that's another one. When people ask me, Hey, can you refer me to a shop? There's been a lot of shops I've gone into that have nothing on their walls. Mm-hmm. So I'm supposed to send someone in there. I'm going to find a shop like you guys that mm-hmm. freaking put the money out. Mm-hmm. You've stretched the money out and you've got everything for them to look at on the wall. Well, that's, you know, dude, I'm going to send, I'm going to be like, Hey, you can go 30 minutes and see nothing. Or I'm going to send you five hours. And these guys are a legit shop. Mm-hmm. And there's, 
there's ones in our industry where you just know their name, right? right. You do. Yep. And the sad thing is every shop has that ability, but not everybody does. But on the flip side of that, there's also some areas, there's some small towns that have some freaking ringers, dude. Mm -hmm. Like there's some, what we would refer to as basement bandits, you know, back when we were really trying to find dealers that were storefront brick and mortar dealers. Nowadays, there's some freaking aces in the hole and yeah, they Mm -hmm. might have to call a Lancaster and order all your stuff or something, but that's what's awesome is maybe that's the only place this guy has 30 miles away. But if he wants to get into archery, he can go to that kid. That kid is like building freaking setups based off everything he's watched. You know, Mm -hmm. the main, the main freaking horseman of our industry putting content out there. Right. He's watched everything they've done and he's freaking better than that shop that has an old owner that refu- that's I've built mm-hmm. bows forever. I don't need to be told what's going on now. Well, yeah. sorry, you're getting passed. Mm-hmm. And those are the shops when people say, well, you know, how come you didn't recommend this? I'm like, well, man, you got to have product. Mm-hmm. You got to have up to date knowledge behind your counter. You got to have shooters, mm-hmm. people that shoot, and you have to have the passion for customer service. If you got those things, I'm going to, I will literally put, you know, if you've mm-hmm. got those four things, send me a letter and show me who you are. I will put your name on our website and be like, mm-hmm. this is a legit freaking dealer. And we've talked about <clears throat> that. We've talked about, you know, actually like doing something where like I can post like certified knock on approved people because I can tell you dude when you came in with your stuff I mean it takes me my brain like processes a setup like that like like when you watch the Terminator and you see him like scan people Mm -hmm. you know I'm slow at talking and I'm like slow at a lot of things I do but I have this stupid ability to find something wrong with things Mm -hmm. and whether it's four leaf clovers i mean i can find those on a full pace walk they just stick out (laughs) but like when i looked at your setup i'm like this is freaking cool and i and you know and i showed you like the one thing on where you tie the cable i kind of asked you about that and which it, it, to me it was interesting, you know, it was different. So I, I liked seeing it, and I also like, you know, I, I was looking at your peep. Mm-hmm. Um, both of those are like, you know, I want to ask the why to them, but then I also said, okay, that's cool. Here's why I do it the way that I do it. Mm-hmm. And, and that's it, that's something I asked Andy on the way down. You know, we've known each other forever. I'm like, I I don't want to walk in there and be the starstruck dude, you know. And he's like, no, no, like he's completely honest. And the first five minutes we talked, you didn't put me down. You didn't, you didn't say like, dude, that is not right. You didn't give me a chance. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we're still here for a little while. We haven't shot yet. We haven't shot. Um, But no, I appreciate that. And and the, but the, the cool thing is there's reasonings for certain things. And then the explanation is there. Yeah. I just listened to a podcast. You, I think it was the pros and, uh, projectiles that you did <laughs> who's it with a uh, gentleman from Oregon you guys talked about turkey hunt oh then, me and Mike Mike's, yeah Mike slinkered from hex and and the thing about you know the, the whole arrow aspect came up and heavy foc and that 
pertaining there's there's so much out there that's is good and then there's something that's great and then there's a lot that's just shit you know about arrows and how to build your arrows yeah having that knowledge at your fingertips and then having quality quality companies like easton in the house you know and in victory and and some other that we'll name but or won't name you can build an arrow to match your bow you have to yeah I was gonna you say have it. to yeah um to get the full experience yeah you know. so i always tell people i build bows and i tune arrows mm-hmm. um so and you know there's so many options on arrows because the arrow really has to it has to be perfectly fitted it's i mean it's like like in golf clubs, you know how, you know, if you if you really get a pair of good clubs, the shaft, I mean, the, the smallest details of the shaft is incredible for what your golf game does, mm-hmm. right? And then, and then how that shaft even affects, like, your head angle on your club and stuff. An arrow is the same thing. Like, it, you can have an arrow that's, you know, one spine apart, mm-hmm. but, like, two totally different beasts um and so like with easton they have so many options because they understand that and you know and i think they've just over they've become such a monster they can they can be that finite mm-hmm. which is what in my opinion what sets easton apart there there's there's some great arrows out there and there's some new companies that make a great product but they don't have the diversity mm-hmm. that easton does it's right. just, you know, and, and, and Easton understands that, you know, and when you look at like Olympic medals mm-hmm. and honestly, we need to look at target archery for the capabilities of a bow. Here's the problem with hunters. The problem right now is hunters are trying to take a lot of information from people trying to have something new and different with arrows. So there's, you know, these super hard helicals are coming back. Um, left helicals coming back. Listen, none of this is new mm-hmm. and none of this has ever won a medal. Right. So, you know, the arrows that are behind you are all arrows that have won medals mm-hmm. and those arrows. And honestly, I'm not even much of a medal winner, but I can tell you right now, you look at like Dave Cousins, Mm -hmm. that dude, Dave is not out shooting a three, three degree helical. (laughs) I mean, call me dude. If like, if you are, I want to ask why, but you know, we, we found out that there's, there's literally diminishing return. The faster you start spinning something, yeah, it corrects faster. Um, but we all we all grew up shooting 30, 50, 70, 90 meters. That was mm-hmm. our tournaments. And then medals were won at 70 meters. Well, all that's been brought so far in now, it's 50 meters. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, listen, at 50 meters, yes, that thing can still be accurate. But once it's spinning for a longer distance, it starts to slow down faster and starts to lose accuracy. So that's why, like... You know, the sonic arrows that we do, um, it's a slightly lower offset than I have on the others because that's just an awesome long-range projectile. It was Mm -hmm. really, I wanted it to be a crossover arrow. Whereas, you know, with 
and honestly, through testing, I've just found that that four fletch and the two and a half degree for a right, it stabilizes, it keeps a broadhead on, and I just go off how they group. Mm-hmm. Like, we can talk about how they fly off a string. We can talk about how a beer shaft th- flies through a pace, piece of paper. Yep. And a lot of times, yes, these things have similarities in the end. Like, I can have a bow that shoots a bullet hole. And I also could have a bow that shoots a per- has a perfect French tune, and it shoots a bullet hole. <clears throat> I can have a bow that has a perfect French tune and it shoots a bear shaft perfectly. Mm-hmm. But I've also had bows that outshot any of that, that had a, maybe a, maybe one had a high left tear coming out mm-hmm. and that's just how it was. But after freaking 10 yards, that thing just, you know, I had bows that could just shoot X's at 90 mm-hmm. meters, X's through my shooting machine. And I would just sit there and shoot tons through the shooting machine and then go and move the clamp like literally what would be equal to a half a degree refletch another three shoot them down there like it was just these were all things that i that i did and i think now and i think a lot of the old timers did it too because you know they could have had six fletch they could have mm-hmm. had high profile they could have had 300 grains on the front of their arrow but Honestly, when it comes down to what is like the most dead accurate, ridiculous shooting projectile downrange, most of the time it was, you know, a low profile vein at Mm -hmm. one and a half degrees with 125 grains in the point of it. Yep. And that's what it was, dude. Like how many, how many 3D shoots do you, professional 3D shoots have been won with like... I don't know, an average of 110 grains in the front of the arrow. Probably quite a few. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, there was there was just never, hell, when I was in 3D, everyone was trying to get 280 feet a second. There were people shooting cool 30s. I've got them. They're 30 grain points. We shot 30 grain points in 2312s in the pro class so really? that, yeah because <clears throat> some the bows were dead slow like mm-hmm. the bows were 290 feet a second ibo right you know ibo so you know you're out there having to shoot damn near five grains per pound at one time to like get speeds like that <laughs> yeah. yeah so y- you brought up the target archery you know look to the target archers where medals are won yeah speaking of releases mm-hmm. you know there's not very many re- or medals that are won with a true fire smoke <laughs> finger style <laughs> you know what i mean there's a few <laughs> index finger shooters that have their time you know on on the tournament podiums but normally we get them shoot off by the next year (laughs) (laughs) but listen when they're on like get out of the way they're gonna freaking they are gonna do something you don't think's humanly possible but it shouldn't be yeah but but then um i don't know just kind of let them cook a little bit and bring them back the next year normally they And, and i bring that up because of the you know the releases that you work with and and you've instilled this program you know we talk about andy has a good friend that and 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 I can even talk about me like I you know I was at some point in my career I was ready to quit because I I didn't have the 
the learning or knowledge to work through a release. Mm-hmm. You know, I could go spend three grand on a bow and I have pimped out arrows in the site and everything was perfect, but I didn't know how to execute my release to finish my shot sequence to again, have an end result. That was the anticipation of the whole beginning anyways. Yeah. And you know, there's, there's a lot of people out there that'll spend the money on the equipment minus the release. They think just a release is a release and then they don't pay five cents for the knowledge on how to work or shoot everything, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And we probably see it a lot more on our end than you. I mean, but you, you've been traveling with the tack and you see a plethora of things out there. Oh yeah. But I think as archery as a whole, not just target archery, but archery as a whole hunters that are going to these events, they're seeing things it's opening the eyes and they can see instant success they can relive their archery career and boost it to where okay now i'm lethal again just a little bit of knowledge listen you don't want any part of the tax shooters i'm just going to tell you because like someone might show up with like one of those old school setups on Mm -hmm. like day one or year one but they're leaving with like a like a a movable site with a hundred yard mark on it by the end of the freaking thing. Right. Like they're walking out of there with a target site. They're already like looking at different arrows. They're like already buying different veins. And these people come, I mean, it's just weird for me that like a 12 year old to come up and you'll be like, Hey buddy, you want to maybe take a few little pokes at this at a hundred? They're like, I got it. (laughs) and then just like drop a bomb in there and they look like me yeah but like 150 pounds lighter (laughs) and i'm just like oh my god this kid is like doesn't even have braces yet and he looks (laughs) perfect and they're just dropping bombs like archery is going to just become a game of perfection very mm-hmm. soon like within the next decade you know it it's cool it's very cool you know at the time we when i when i came up i couldn't even imagine the ones that were before me like you know like the like ragsdale right or jay bars like people like that um when i came up there weren't we were still really learning secrets and like you know we were still playing with like vein types or or um you know like i I showed you you know like the very Mm -hmm. first true ball handheld release right in there and and all the you know hundreds hundreds if not a thousand that i've done with jerry um that just we never knew what if we put our D loop underneath until you went to a freaking tournament and tried it or like, I'm going to put my D loop above Mm -hmm. or, you know, it's just like all this weird stuff, you know, Ulmer would show up with, you know, he shot a Revenger backwards. Did you like, he would draw it laid the other way, dude. He'd flip the head around. Really? Yeah. So it was like the most weird looking claw hand you've ever (laughs) seen when he'd hold it at full draw. But he like came and won a tournament that way. So then like everybody like flipped the heads on their releases. And I mean, there were people punching themselves in the face the next tournament and all kind of, you know, and then he had already changed and went back to something, something else. else. Yeah. yeah. And then all of a sudden I remember, I remember when he showed up with like, you know, little one inch veins mm-hmm. and everyone was just like, what the heck? And then he had some of those light freaking points that flight mate 
was making on kind of the side. So, I mean, we were learning all these things. Mm -hmm. There wasn't, you know, the archery books were just more on recurves and, you know, they just weren't like compound archery was just making, you know, it was kind of like all of a sudden having a wheel and then, you know, and then like someone's got a bike and then someone puts a motor on a bike and then now there's freaking four wheelers there's two wheelers there's semi truck like that was that was compound archery when i got mm-hmm. in right like it was the time where you know next thing you know when someone hits 300 feet a second holy crap like right. it was like what the heck is this and honestly i remember i bought a PSEG force because it was 300 feet a second it was like the first thing and it was just i mean it was the worst thing to experience ever when you shot mm-hmm. it it was like a five inch brace height all the the risers were super short it was all limb and they were pretty much vertical so you just had this thing <laughs> oh, just God. like a tuning fork just right buzzing in your hand so it was um it was cool to like come up in that era now all the free information we've put out there alone Mm -hmm. like i i have i don't hide back anything like knock on archery is about growing the sport of archery that's Mm -hmm. what i want to give back you know i want to retire from archery giving everything i've learned back and honestly when i come up with new subjects it's just because someone (laughs) reminded me it's not because i'm learning something and that's why the tax for me i'm so passionate about it because i interact with every per every single person that shoots our range um i'm there and then and then i'm in the village Mm -hmm. and so I literally get to talk to thousands of people and that's when I get ideas. So like for me, when people are like, sorry to take some of your time, I'm like, tell me like you could be the next person that gives me the ability to help everybody else in our community. Exactly. So that's why when people are like, how do you do it all day and like not turn off? Mm -hmm. I'm because yeah, it, dude i'm worn out like i smoked physically Mm -hmm. and and at the night mentally i can't like turn it off i have to i have to take something to go to sleep Mm -hmm. um at the tax because i'm just like on but no different than that person's coming up to me and that's that's literally whether you know if it's the 15th hour of the day that's the 10 minutes they got well in that 10 minutes this person could give me another tool to help everyone else so i'm like what you got dude yeah where are you from <clears throat> and you there's know. not hey, anybody can you look at my setup you know, yeah you, um can you look at my setup you know i've tried everything but like how come i can't get this right mm-hmm. i'm like oh dude here's right. here's what it is and then i go to my phone mm-hmm. i'm like all right there's a new one and and honestly, I got asked the question in Montana. Um, well, I posted a video two days ago, the six to nine drill. Yep. And the amount of people that are very, very seasoned archers that have texted me and they're like, dude, I can't freaking believe how good I shot last night when I started thinking about that. They're like, mm-hmm. how have I never not known this? You know, and that's the thing, like, high level target archers they have to learn it 
Mm-hmm. I was never told it, but listen, you know, honestly, I grew up shooting with, in my opinion, the all-time greatest archer, Dave Cousins. Mm-hmm. You know, he Dave is still doing it at a level that's insane. Mm-hmm. You know, he's kept up, and he was doing it pretty damn close to that level when no one told him how. And, and honestly, Dave was the first person that, like, him and I opened up to each other, and he would know that I was on the trail of figuring something out. Like when I, when I figured out X tens, he knew it because he, he saw me shooting and he looked over and he goes, you figured them out, didn't you? And I go, yep. And he pretty much just said, don't you dare talk about it. Mm -hmm. And, and so there was like lots of, and then, and then honestly, when we, um, when we competed against each other in the very first uh, field trials or f- field tournament, um, I was I was ranging the unmarked round the way everybody else thinks you have to do it, and but it's not like super accurate and and that method like because you're drawing back and you're framing you mm-hmm. know and at that time people you know everyone was framing with their bubbles yeah so you know there's just a different process to draw back and line up on the target and then you'd have to let your bow down and then you'd have to set your sight and and go right um well there was another method that had to do with the position of your magnification the size of your dot and where the dot would perfectly align and then adjusting the, your sight length to where your dot would perfectly align on the dead center at 40 meters. And then mathematically every single ring was five meters as a system. So like, you know, Dave and I could range out to a hundred meters within a yard. And when I figured that out for the second time, um, because I could tell just how he was framing, like when he'd draw back and he was pointing at the target, I could tell something was different. Mm-hmm. So I just started like paying attention, paying attention. And then I think the next time he saw me, my sight length was different. So he kind of like looked at me and then honestly, there was one small part of the puzzle that I didn't know. And Dave, Dave, I think he knew I was going to get there plus Honestly, he knew I was on his team, and he wanted mm-hmm. us to kick ass right. where we were going. Um, and he just goes, you have to divide by five. And I just said, oh, yeah. So, like, Clicked. He, yeah, once like once that happened, then, you know, then. And, and honestly, that was, um, that the, the, he was the first person to where I was actually able to train with. I've always liked training with people that are better than me. Um, and Dave was certainly better than me. So we would shoot together. We would train together. And then once I traveled internationally and I met like Chris, Chris White, or when I met Clint Freeman, you know, I would train and I would fly these people into tournaments early to just to shoot with me because I would, one, I would watch them, but two, it was also a way of, kind of acclimating around them to where I didn't feel nervous shooting with them like day one of the tournament right. because by then we had 
shot together for quite a while and and when you get to a certain level you know there's at my during my time there was probably 10 guys that could win on any given day if the same round was shot well hell now there's probably 50 right Mm -hmm. i mean there's probably there's probably 50 that would be like that and and some of and like and the amount of people that could that totally could shoot perfection there's there's probably 10 of them that could shoot perfection almost any day Mm -hmm. on it you know on a given day that certainly wasn't the case when we were around you know right it's like someone would maybe do that every now and then but now there's there's a lot of people that are capable of that but the one that's going to stand out for like a small blip of time is going to be the one that like didn't just meet this chick that he needs like mm-hmm. that he's gonna <laughs> stay in there till two in the morning every day or didn't just have a baby or yep. didn't just have to get start their new job and they don't have vacation or they just uh, they moved from the country into the city and now they don't have a place to practice when i was out there i could shoot 50 meters in the backyards every night like those small little things are the only thing that changed the faces of who's our best at the time. Yep. When, when that person who is the best at the time, all of a sudden has one thing come up in his life where now he just had his first kid. Yep. Then just the timeline changes. A new shark comes up Mm -hmm. starts feeding. Cause they're all there waiting. Yep. All they're waiting. Do you ever get the itch to go back and compete? Like, is it past or is it every day? Freaking 18 to 27 years old of myself would kick the shit out of me. Yeah. Like, I know right now there was 10 years of my life that would beat the shit out of me right now without thinking about it. And like I said, there's 100 of those guys now. Mm -hmm. So you're either all in or you're not even in. Right. I don't want, like... You know, I told someone's like, well, dude, just come shoot. I go, dude, I'll give you 250 bucks for the entry because that's all I'm going to do. I'm going to go donate it mm-hmm. because in the end, I can tell you that I'll, I'll get ready and I'm going to shoot for the next month. The reality is I'll probably have two real training days in the next three weeks because I'm going to walk out there and start practicing and, you know, the freaking, you know, pool guy calls or I'm going to go out there and then some, you know, Andy calls and says, Hey, we need pictures of this for this next patent or whatever. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's just like, there's no way I could do it. And so it would just be like, if you want to see me shoot, come to attack. Yeah. You know, if people want to shoot, see me shoot, come to attack, Mm -hmm. you know, challenge me. What, you know, listen, I, you know, some people challenge me. Some people just want me to shoot. Mm-hmm. Or honestly, I don't even shoot unless someone asks. Yep. But like, yeah, I'm. I feel like I'm shooting way better than I think a 47 year old person should shoot. But I honestly felt that way at like 46 and 45 <laughs> and 44. Yeah. Um, I feel like for archers the older you get the better like for me just because my like don't give a shit factor is just like at a way different level like if someone's like well what happens if that kid beats you i'm like dude 
I've shot thousands of competitions. Mm -hmm. I have won a couple handfuls. Like that's just another day in the park for me, man. Yeah. Like there's some really good people and the crazy thing about archery. And honestly, the reason, like another question I get asked, why didn't you ever try out for the Olympics or why didn't you ever like go for Olympic recurve? There's no way I want to base four years of my life on 10 minutes of mm -hmm. weather that I can affect. Yep. And at my draw length and at my stature, when the wind is blowing, I am blowing all over the place. I'm a huge frame. Like, so that's why, you know, if I go outside and it's just gusting wind, mm -hmm. dude, I'll turn around and come in and shoot it like five yards. Yep. Because I just, I don't want to have, you know, I just don't want to have to deal with like wind at my size so i there's no way i wanted to train for four years of my life to then go to the games and like i you know i remember seeing some of them and it's like sideways sheets of rain i'm just like dude mm -hmm. you just be out there <laughs> um just flinging arrows Open. super long arrows that are ballistically <clears throat> inferior to the short guys anyway I get one more question and I'll let, I'll let you, we'll get back to our day because this is one of your only days that you probably have off. I gave you the whole day, dude. <laughs> I know. Yeah, you got, I mean. So the hunting five. aspect, I hate the word professional hunter. Yeah. Uh, I agree. I respect guys like yourself and you brought up Michael Waddell and you know, there's, there's becoming some really, really good, strong uh, mentors you do the greatest job of teaching on that, but hunting, you're such a huge standalone for that when it comes. So you're at every tack and you're running a business and you're busy every day and still have time for personal life is hunting your getaway or is it, is it a job? No, it's my getaway. And truthfully it felt, it started to feel like a job. Um, not this past season, but the season before that. And it was kind of a, it was a really hard thing because I wanted to grow archery so bad that I just, every person that had a platform that was asking me to build them a bow or take them on a hunt, I was not turning it down because I was like, there was just such a boom, like during that whole like COVID span mm -hmm. where, you know, it was like, I don't know. I think I did like 50 celebrity builds or like for the NTN. And then, and then it was like a hundred the next year. And, and like, honestly, there's some people that I deal with that are very high profile and they're like, they're not going to be seen. You know, I'm mm -hmm. not even going to, I don't even have, you know, I'm not going <clears> to <throat> brag about or anything. Yeah. But they're people that I know is good for archery. And then and then I start going on those hunts, and then I'm on the hunt. I'm honestly saying, like, hey, I want to hunt with you on the first day. And then, like, you know, they make some small mistake, you know, and they move at the wrong time. And then I'll just, hey, I'll can I come out with you in the morning? Because I'm, like, wanting to see them get their first animal. Mm -hmm. Well, next thing you know, it's like there's one day left, and I'm like, hey, I got to go out on my, like, I got to go try to get something, right. you know. And then I end up, like, kind of, like, you know, shooting more on a rush. Like, 
like I kept, I felt like most of my personal season felt like the last day of your hunt. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, last full day of the hunt, I gotta get something, mm-hmm. and and then also it's just, um, I don't know, you can, I don't want to call it babysitting, but you know, I'm I, there's like a switch that goes off in me when it's like kill time mm-hmm. to where like my intensity. If there's ever an op- a chance where like I'm gonna do something really dumb, it would be like that moment between I could take a shot and kill this thing right now, or you just screwed it up. Like <laughs> like I could fly off the handle in that yeah. in that little particular moment because I'm just like so hyper focused. Um, so I had to just I had to just tell people like, hey, you guys can do this on your own. Like you got it. Like. You went to a spot, you know what an elk hunt's like, you know what a, you know, a freaking DIY hunt, you know, mm-hmm. is. Like, you know, the first place I went with Andy Stumpf, we went up to Alberta, and, you know, it was, you have to have an outfitter as a non-resident to get a tag. Um, but when you're a bow hunter, you're also not like, it's not like you're holding the hand of a guide, like at least the ones that I'm with. You know, they let you hunt. Right. So, um you know, I just, all these different people, um, and I wish I could hunt with Andy more truthfully, but I was just hunting for everyone else. Mm-hmm. And, and then I needed, I actually need to hunt for the content for all of you too, because some of the people I'm hunting with, I can't put on camera. Right. So it's, so I'm like giving all of my time to this person and then i'm trying to like rush through mine so that i'm not leaving everyone that's a knock on nation person Mm -hmm. hanging you know what i mean right um and so i just i don't know i kind of got to the point where i I just told everyone like you can do it book a hunt yeah here's where you can you know go here hey you two guys you should you guys should do something together you know i'll get your equipment ready you make sure you're ready and like go hunt like have fun so i just took the training wheels off of probably 80 percent of my falls for the two or three years prior i just took all those training wheels off and just like went to alberta with two of my closest buddies and um actually an outfitter that i've that i just love the family like red willow outfitters you know they're, well, it's just a family of T's. They all have T's as a name at the Lowens. They're just, I mean, they're like family. And I went mm-hmm. right to that. You know, I went to that, didn't stay in the lodge, you know, stayed out in the camper with, uh, you know, with my buddies. And, you know, then I came back and went to New Mexico with one, with one friend. And, you know, we just got to freaking shoot during the day and have a singular conversation with the person no like clicks and clicks and this Mm -hmm. team and that team and right these guys a show and that guy's a show and that guy's a show and their media team it's just like it was just like me and this you know my one buddy you know he like introduced me to a freaking beer that i Mm-hmm. that I'm just like, why have I never had a speck, speckled hen? <laughs> um, so it was just like, and honestly, I was like keto. Um, and he told me, he said, if I shoot a bull or if I shoot this bull, um, he said, I don't know. We made a bet on, you know, like if someone had a kill, he asked if I would eat 
um, fried chicken and waffles with him. And so I was just, and he said, and have a speckled hen. And I'm like, that sounds like the weirdest <laughs> combination, dude. But I go, yep. I said, if we, if we draw blood, yeah. I said, I'll break keto. And so sure as shit, dude, like shot something in the morning. So that night there was, I mean, there was like this whole, like we got a, we had the waffles, the chicken, <laughs> uh, the speckled hen. Did your body relapse? Dude, I was like, <laughs> I felt like Anthony Kiedis, like freaking hitting the crack pipe on another go round, dude. I was just like, what is this? Oh. Yeah, because I think we did like a sriracha honey uh, butter to go on that. And damn, son. Yeah. So we see that uh, aspect of your life sometimes on your videos. <clears throat> and you're cooking and we got blessed with the opportunity today. So the way that this, for the guy, the people that are listening to this, the way it laid out is we come down here, we built Andy's bow. I got the knock on uh, school. I guess you could say I learned a few things. We shot our bows a little bit. And then all of a sudden we get called in for lunch and you'd slipped away in steaks and a nice cheese platter and everything. Has that become, because you've lost a ton of weight. You look yeah. phenomenal the health obviously is, is number one priority, but is food like a new era has it always been? You know, what's funny is, um, I always like cooked like venison and wild game and stuff. Um, but it was just like meat. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was just meat. Um, the difference came. So, uh, a guy called me from Traeger and he called me and he got my number from somebody and he said i want to send you a traeger grill and i just said mm, i just got a weber grill for father's day dude like the day before this call right i go i just got a weber grill and he's like well i mean i'm gonna send it to you and i just said dude i'm good and he goes i'm it's gonna change your life for wild game and he's like, I, he's like, if you just cook two things on it for me. And I just said, tell you what, I'll buy the grill. I said, and I said, and if I don't like it, I'll sell it. And he goes, how about this? He goes, I'll sell you the grill right now. And he said, and I'm going to charge your card in two days unless you call me. Mm -hmm. And I go. All right, whatever. And listen, dude, there I'm telling you right now, there's the only thing that would make me call him is the fact that it was that good. Mm -hmm. Cuz I was just going to I mean, there's a couple things in my bow case in the garage out there that people come up to me at events and they they show me like their idea and they'll want to give it to me. But I always say, "Listen, I know what it's like. Let me buy it mm -hmm. and then I'll try it." And I'll tell you what I think. So I just said, dude, send me the grill. Yeah. <laughs> like, okay, whatever. I'll put this thing in a campsite or something. Mm -hmm. And man, I cooked and I came in. I follow, I literally, and this is the other thing about me. Like I have partnerships and relationships with my partners. Mm -hmm. It. I don't sell out to products I don't like. Mm -hmm. I really don't. Um, so I wanted to experience that brand as a consumer. So when that grill came, I opened it up, I got the instructions out and I'm like, 
what if I represent this company, what is someone going to experience? Mm-hmm. So I open it up, and it's like, step one, grab a six-pack. I was like, what the <laughs> hell? And I go, this is freaking, and I started, like, flipping through the things, and, like, the further your progress, like, as your grill's building, it shows you how many beers should be out of your <laughs> six-pack. And I'm like, this is freaking cool. So I built the grill, and then I did this, the startup cycle or whatever, did the burn-off. And then I literally went in with the the menu, the book, the cookbook that came mm. with the grill. And I walked in, I gave it to Harry. And I said, pick anything in that book you want me to cook. And he picked, um, I think the first thing he picked was like ribs. So I'm like, all right. So I just literally like read this simple instruction, went and bought ribs. And I wasn't a rib cooker. Mm-hmm. And literally freaking did it, and, like, the family was just like, what the hell was that? Like, where did that come from? Yeah. And so then I said, I gave him the thing the next day and asked him uh, what he wanted. The first day, I think, was beef ribs. And then he did, uh, I think the next one was, like, pulled pork butt or something. And so I freaking did a pulled pork butt and just, like, changed the thing. And then and then I thought, um, you know what, I'm going to try this. Like, the others were so good, but I'm like, I'm going to try this with Wild Game. So I took um, a whitetail, or a, it was either a whitetail or an elk backstrap out. And I freaking cooked that thing, like, whole, like, just a full roast and then sliced mm-hmm. it. But I did it, like, exactly how it said. And holy crap, like, Sharon and Harry just cleared their plates. They didn't know that it was Wild Game really yeah they were just like holy they go what are we eating tonight and i go steak yeah and they're like is it off the traeger and i go yeah and so um you know i got the grill on a friday so sunday night i call tyler and like he picks up the phone and he goes well i lost 10 bucks and i go what do you mean he goes i bet the under armor guys you would have called me by saturday (laughs) and i said i'm like dude i should have called you saturday i really wanted to i'm like but i had to try the elk on sunday and i said but yeah man this thing's freaking a game changer so what i tell people is the one of the partners i'm most thankful for um as a person is traeger because like everyone in our industry and everything in our industry is designed to kill something Mm -hmm. dude we were never showed how to cook it but honestly traeger came along and traeger totally changed what we're finding as recipes and stuff for for wild game cooking i mean babe winkleman did it like Mm -hmm. like if you could if you couldn't watch babe or babe's wife then you maybe didn't like learn any (laughs) outdoor cooking but Traeger gave the outdoor industry the tool it needed to make their kills taste better. And honestly, Traeger, I think, and Yeti bridged the gap between non-hunters and people with an open mind that are looking for a sustainable food source. Mm -hmm. They are the two that, like, made that water not as, like, rough. Yeah. Because it's like, okay, this company's showing how to cook amazing wild game. This company's showing how 
people are like literally hunting for food because yeti mm -hmm. the yeti stories were just i think s such a important thing for the industry during that time their short films were great and then honestly then traeger came in and started doing it then then companies like sika started you know and then obviously ranella and then mm -hmm. meteor um do such a great job of showing that bridge you know but having the companies to bridge the gap was also important you know absolutely the aspect of archery as a whole the growth the continued growth have we reached a peak yet no no i think there's um and really what a lot of people don't can't quite believe um i think when they see when they see knock on like when you see i don't know it's it's like it's just an energy it's an energy and it's a whole new crowd and so like none of my target crowd from back when i competed or you know just that side of target archery like when they see that like what's happening attack they're like what the heck is going on it's i didn't fight for our own pie we built a new one mm -hmm. we baked a new pie and it was giving free education to anyone that wanted to apply time to become an archer and there is a lot of people especially during covid that had never shot a bow or anything and ordered one through the mail and watched the school a knock and literally learned to shoot, learned to build a bow, did it, and now they're at TAC shooting 100-yard Bigfoots, and they're like, dude, I had never even shot a bow until I was stuck in my yard and built this entire thing. And I mean, I can see it. When they walk up, I'm like, yep, everything on that is something I've taught. And then they come up, they're like, what do you think of my bow? Dude, built mm -hmm. this from everything you showed me. It's like, it's the most rewarding thing, but the pie that I've like started to bake with the new archers and, and granted, listen, the biggest ingredient that came into that was Joe Rogan, like Joe Rogan putting my passion in front of millions of people brought people saying like, Hey, I was thinking about trying archery. And so, um, you know, people like Rogan, honestly, companies like black rifle coffee coming in Jocko, Andy Stumpf, putting me in front of the entire military crowd and then honestly that completely like igniting a, a bigger passion in me is trying to come up with something that's good for the people from our military services that really need it so i mean i feel like i could i feel like i could make another planet just out of the military community alone if if I didn't have this going on, mm -hmm. and I think once that happens, then I think the another pie is just bigger. You know, right now we're all like fighting for the same one. Then the reality is, I think if people get good at archery faster and understand it more, the reality is there's not one pie on the table. There's a whole buffet. Mm -hmm. And it's like, hey, manufacturers, what is your passion? Yeah. Do you like military and veterans? Do you like women and kids? You know, do you like people who only want to hunt to provide? Like, 
these are all just like different planets or different pies that we have the ability to grow archery and grow hunting you know both but i think for you know like in that case for the military 100 percent. that's like that is a total like that is a rescue for ptsd Mm-hmm. Like for so many, the amount of stories I hear every tack is cr- the amount of stories I hear from people that had literally guns in their mouths and then heard a podcast with Rogan or saw one of my videos on YouTube while they were like, you know, in their last day doing, you know, scrubbing through YouTube and then stumbled on archery and went into a shop. Mm-hmm. got set up started went home watched the youtube and saw learned how to shoot from us mm-hmm. it i mean these stories are just like life-changing dude and you know the thing is there's so many different pies and and as an industry probably the hardest thing is going to be making sure at times we're all pointing our lights in the same direction to to like be together and not you know that's the one thing that that i really don't like right now i do not like trad bow versus compound bow Mm -hmm. i do not like private land versus public land i do not like outfitter versus diy hunts like these are all divisions Mm -hmm. compound bow versus crossbow listen we're all hunters in the end yep you know we're hunters and if we freaking want to keep this thing because listen my wife is european i built my career traveling the world doing archery Mm -hmm. like every single place ever and we are really fortunate to have the rights we have here absolutely i don't think people realize how like limited that is you know it's like we have it going on over here and listen you look at like what's happening in mainstream cancel culture you think hunting can't become the Mm -hmm. next thing yeah like this is very fragile Mm -hmm. and we all need to be together you know that's that's the only way that the pie keeps growing is if we actually have something to bake. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think, and you hit it right on the head as far as a total. Uh, for example, right now, Minnesota, it's in its past legislation, but it's going into regulation that the entire archery season anybody can shoot a crossbow. Then it like erupted this volcano of that's not true archery and and you know as a pro shop we're very very careful to say what line you can have your beliefs yeah but you put your game face on when you put your your jersey on you walk in the shop and you know for example i i put out or we put out a video and i said like my 12 year old son is a string bean who can't draw but 30 pounds and i don't feel it's lethal yeah. So do I take the last three years of his hunting career and just throw it in the garbage because he can't shoot a bow? Or do I allow him to use a crossbow where it's legal Yeah. and be successful and, and A, put meat on the table to where he, he gutted his first deer and learn that, you know, yes, it's not a, it's not a, a vertical bow, yeah. but it's still an aspect of hunting and family and archery and a total aspect of it. Yeah, that, I mean... It- <laughs> 
there's certain subjects that are just tough ones. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, you know, I look at, I mean, dude, my shoulder don't feel like I'm going to be able to pull a bow much longer. <laughs> I mean, if I'm honest with you, I'm either going to have to shoot something with my feet or shoot a crossbow with my, you know, with my lips or something. <laughs> I don't know. But yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think you're right. Like there's applications for everybody. You know, I just, I just, um, I just talked about this same subject with, um, another company that i work with because i i'm i want i use it but i really think this is an important element to hunting is land trust and so you know there people are already getting confused with what they are you know they're not like buying public land and leasing it out to people like they're not doing that what they do is they're an airbnb of private property Mm -hmm. that's what they are so listen Here's a perfect example of why this system is awesome, okay? Our neighbor, two doors down, the, the um, she just inherited the family, like, trust of acreage or their, mm-hmm. their like, their family farm. Yep. Can't, can't be sold. Yep. Her and her sister just, like, got this. Yep. And they can't sell it. And they're like, how do we pay $10,000 a year for taxes we're, we're not even going to do anything with it. It's just going to keep getting handed down through the family. So this is a perfect example of they actually offer their land for whatever the calendar dates are that they choose. They offer their land for this much per day to be able to just go there and do a DIY hunt. Well, dude, this is an awesome service because, one, they're not having to sell to a developer, duh, and that land is now honestly not getting a lot of pressure, especially if you like book it right, mm-hmm. you know, it's not getting a lot of pressure. These are people sometimes that don't even use the property. It's an investment piece they bought or whatever. So it's not like hunters are getting screwed out of land that they used to hunt for free. Yeah. In some cases, but you know, Hey, listen, I bought my own farm because I got, I just got tired of every place I had permission, either getting leased out from under me or someone else, um, you know, coming on the property or Mm -hmm. he's like, Hey, I just let everybody go. Right. So I got tired of that. You know, I got tired of booking a day's vacation off work and going out there. And then, you know, someone else is like a hundred yards down from me, even if it's on a private farm. So like the reality is, if you want better hunting, you know, or if you want, if you want better hunting and you want less pressure, you're going to have to pay something for it. Mm-hmm. You know, whether it's sweat, yep. working it off for a farmer, yep. whether it's, you know, someone, you know, and nurturing that relationship to make sure they're still getting you permission to go. Like there's always a cost one way or another. So, you know, I think, those types of divides too are just kind of stupid because listen, I'm definitely going to fight for public land. Like I'm going to fight for it. But if I work harder, then I'm going to know, Hey, yeah, it's nice to not hunt land where I'm running into people. Right. So I'm willing to work harder through the year to pay more, to be able to have a better hunt. Mm -hmm. So like for me, it's always gone to the hunt. Like yeah. when I left the U S team, it was because I was, I refused to shoot in September. Mm-hmm. I refused to do the world, the world final in September. 
And they just said, well, if, if you're saying you won't go to it, you can't be on the team. And I'm like, I will not compete in September. Like, I'm going to I'm gonna try to win every single one until mm-hmm. then. Yep. And, you know, and if I won all four and, I, and I'm the and I have to go, well, guess what? I am not going to go. I'm just telling right. you. Like, even if I've won four in a row, I'm not going to go in September. I'm taking this freaking New Mexico tag and I'm going to slay something. Love it. <laughs> Speaking of slay something, so we got just a little bit left here yeah, down in the dojo. That's the editing team. I, I was going to say, they, what are we going to do, sizzling bacon or something? We're, uh, we're going to cut it short, and then we're going to enjoy ourselves and shoot a little bit and let you get back to it. But, <clears throat> John, I surely appreciate you sitting down, the invitation to come down here. There's some cool things coming out uh, in the future. For those of you that are listening, like, again, you can visit all of this stuff on YouTube and podcast and, and you can become a better shooter and incorporate a pro shop to help you guide you in the certain situations for a bow purchase arrows, questions that you may not be able to get a hold of the knock on nation team that there's everything's out there. You can find everything, but a pro shop like archery country that you're listening to, we can be there to answer the small questions. And if you don't have time, or you don't have a press or money to do it, we can be your source. Well, honestly, you <laughs> that's the best option. Like, if you have a good shop like yours, go there. Like, go there. Someone the other day asked me, they're like, you know, they said something like, how long did it take you to fletch these arrows? And I go, I didn't fletch them. <laughs> and he goes, who fletches them? I'm like, dude, we have guys at, at work that fletch all day. And I'm like, they are way better than me at it. So, you know, when you have access to a shop with guys like you that are doing, you know, 10 bows a day, mm-hmm. go there. Like, they, you know, the the techniques of archery are diminishing skill. It's perishable. When guys are doing it every single day, I mean, their knife is way sharper. So, yeah, mm-hmm. if you have the ability to go to a shop, like archery country go you're fortunate you're lucky absolutely be sure to check out knockonarchery.com for our full line of custom designed products as well as free in-depth education and bow hunting entertainment to help you shoot at your best